Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Peter Fahm, and I'm the Vice President for Research and Regional Initiatives here at the Atlantic Council, as well as Director of the Council's Africa Center. On behalf of the, the Atlantic Council's Chairman, Governor John Huntsman, and our President, Fred Kemp, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to this address by Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs on Africa's place on the world stage. I'd like to extend a special welcome to their excellencies, the ambassadors, the members of the African Diplomatic Corps here in Washington, who honor us by their presence here this afternoon. Excellencies, your presence here is proof of the esteem and affection with which our speaker today is rightly held, and I thank you for that testimonial. I also want to acknowledge the presence of Ambassador Bruce Wharton, the Acting Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, as well as three of Ambassador Thomas Greenfield's predecessors as Assistant Secretary in Charge of the Bureau of African Affairs, Ambassador Hank Cohen, Ambassador Jendai Frazier, Ambassador Johnny Carson. Now, as my African sisters and brothers are wont to say, with all protocols observed, <laughs> uh, permit me to just say a word about the Atlantic Council's Africa Center before introducing today's distinguished speaker. The Africa Center here was established in September 2009 with a mission to help transform US and European policy approaches to Africa by emphasizing the building of strong geopolitical partnerships with African states, and strengthening economic growth and prosperity on the continent. The center seeks to engage and inform both policymakers and the general public of the strategic importance of Africa, both globally and for American and European interests in particular, through programs, many with the participation of African heads of state and ministers, as well as senior US and other partner officials, and publications, as well as a robust media presence. Within the context of the Atlantic Council's overall mandate to promote a constructive U.S. leadership and engagement in international affairs based on the central role of the Atlantic community and its shared values, the Africa Center supports and collaborates with the public and private sectors in forging practical solutions to the challenges and opportunities in Africa. It's in the spirit of this mandate that I'm delighted we're able to host this event on the eve of Ambassador Thomas Greenfield's departure from her role as steward of the relationship between the United States and one of the world's most dynamic and fastest growing regions. These years have been a remarkable, seen a remarkable advance in US trade and investment in Africa, as well as America's commitment to Africa's security, its democratic development, and its peoples. Achievements which very closely align with those objectives for which the Atlantic Council's Africa Center and indeed the Council itself were created. And thus why we here at the Atlantic Council have endeavored to contribute to policies that represent a win for the United States as well as wins for African countries and Africa as a whole. To say nothing of a win for the wider Atlantic community of which Africa is very much a part. These are realities, indeed verities, worth recalling in these times of change and transition. And indeed, it's gratifying to see their global recognition in the fact 
that both the G7 summit in May and the G20 summit in July will focus on Africa. Now let me, the distinct pleasure of introducing the person you really came here to hear. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, of course, was sworn in as Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of African Affairs on August 6, 2013. She came to her current position from a more than three-decade-long career in the Foreign Service that included postings in Switzerland, Pakistan, Kenya, the Gambia, Nigeria, and Jamaica, to say nothing of a well-known heroic episode in Rwanda during the darkest days of that country's genocide. Her Washington postings included tours in the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, as well as the Bureau of African Affairs, where she served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary from 2006 to 2008. From 2008 to 2012, she served as America's Ambassador to Liberia, where she participated in the rebuilding of that country. And I'm truly delighted to say uh, that rebuilding, which has now given the lie to the subtitle of my book on that country's vicious civil war, Portrait of a Failed State. <laughs> Returning home from Monrovia, she served as Director General of the Foreign Service and Director of Human Resources, leading a full range of personnel functions for the State Department's 70,000 strong workforce before being nominated by President Obama and confirmed by the United States Senate as the 17th Assistant Secretary for African Affairs. As Assistant Secretary Ambassador Thomas Greenfield leads a team that includes approximately 1,100 foreign service officers and civil servants and some 13,000 local staff who proudly serve in Washington as well as 49 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And if Ambassador Thomas Greenfield will permit me, let me quote the testimony she gave to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at her confirmation hearing in 2013. I do not mean to sound immodest by raising our expectations and setting very high goals. But for far too many years, we've been Africa's partners in times of adversity. While we will continue to support the African people in moments of crisis, we will now also be Africa's partner in times of prosperity. Well, Madam Assistant Secretary, Linda, I think that we can say today that having packed the first US-Africa Leader Summit, two US-Africa Business Forums, the first three classes of the Young African Leaders Initiative, the renewal of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, and just a couple other things into the last three and some years. It's been quite a run, and that the high goals you've set are that much closer. Thanks to the efforts of many in this room have contributed to, but especially thanks to your passion and personal commitment, and to the daily sacrifice and dedication of the men and women here in Washington and abroad on posts whom you've led. And so without further ado, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to the Honorable Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, so many friends in the room. Thank you, Peter. I want to start by thanking you and the Atlanta Council team for inviting me here today and for organizing uh, this event. <coughs> Ambassadors, and there are a lot of you in the room, <laughs> so I won't name any. You, former U.S. ambassadors, former assistant secretaries, former commander of AFRICOM, 
uh, African ambassadors, friends, and, and colleagues. And now I will say all protocols observed, just in case I, I missed uh, anyone. Let me thank you for being here today. Tomorrow is my final day as the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of African Affairs. I, it came pretty quickly once the decision was made. And I have to tell you that I leave with tremendous pride. So thank you for outlining some of the major accomplishments that we've had. But I'm humbled also by the challenges that I leave behind for my successor. So the work is not finished. And there's lots more to be done. And I will stand with whomever is selected to replace me uh, to help them as they start to deal with the many challenges that Africa provides for us, as well as its opportunities. Uh, as you may have heard, I'm not going too far away. I've accepted the uh, State Department's detail at the senior, as a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy. I plan to remain focused on Africa while I'm there, and I continue, uh, will continue to help prepare the next generation to make a difference on the African continent and for a lifetime of public service, as we, most of us in this room, have done. I've had an amazing 35-year foreign service career with amazing assignments, um, but my true passion has always been Africa. So this afternoon, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about Africa's place on the world stage, some of the challenges facing the continent moving forward, the successes of the U.S. partnership with Africa, and where I see Africa going in the next decade. And I'll try to answer some key issues facing Africa that I've aimed to address during my tenure as Assistant Secretary. These are how can we help Africa address its surging youth population? How, how can we create more jobs, economic growth, and investment in Africa? and provide opportunities for youth? How best can we partner with Africa in countering terrorism and conflict? And where Africa might find, might be in the next decade on the world stage? And there are many more questions we, we, we could answer, but this is where I'll start. When we hear Africa, we hear the word Africa, the mind jumps reflectively to headlines in the news, conflict, terrorism, crisis, famine, disease, and poverty. True, these problems do exist, but they do not define Africa. And I know that this audience knows that better than anyone, that there's another side to this great continent that we all love. The Africa I've come to know and believe in is a continent. It's a continent of vast opportunity and immense promise. It's a continent with tremendous natural and human resources and a rapidly expanding middle class. It is the next frontier for global opportunity, and it is the continent that has made remarkable progress despite all of the challenges that we know. I've seen that progress firsthand over the past 39 years. I've not been in the Foreign Service for 39 years, only 35, but I started in Africa 39 years ago. When I first visited 
Liberia in 1978 to do research. The continent's population was about 450 million, with 27% living in urban areas. Fast forward to 2017, and the population is now over 1.2 billion, with 40% living in urban areas. The GDP of Sub-Saharan Africa back in 1978 was about $170 million. Now it's about $1.6 trillion. The percentage of people living on less than $1.25 a day in Sub-Saharan Africa has dropped from 56% in 1990 to 41% today, and that's still way too many. When I arrived in Liberia in 1978, I found a continent that suffered from repressive governance, military coups, and violence. And that was the norm for many African countries in those days. But now we're seeing a different picture, Liberia. Liberia has emerged as a champion of democracy and peace. In 2005, it elected Ellen Johnson Sirleaf as the continent's first female president. She has served two terms and will oversee the first transition in Liberia's history of a sitting president to a democratically elected president. That's a big deal. Both Ghana, Ghana and Nigeria in 1978 had been under military controlled governments. They're both now beacons of democracy. Many African countries have had successful democratic elections in recent years. In addition to Nigeria and Ghana, most recently, South Africa, Namibia, Cabo Verde, Senegal, Burkina Faso, Benin, and I can go on and on, but I can't forget the Gambia, where I attended three weeks ago, the presidential inauguration that marked that country's first successful transition of power after a 22-year dictatorship. I felt when I went to Gambia, uh, for the inauguration that it was a victory lap. I was there just uh, uh, on the uh, 18th of February, and it was my last official trip. And it does not get any better than that, that I was not going to deal with a crisis, but I was going to deal with success. In the health arena, life expectancy in Africa was about 47 years in 1978. It's 60 years today. Still too low, but we're making progress. The child mortality rate has dropped 52% between 1990 and 2015, and the maternal mortality rate has fallen 49%. We see an Africa now with an AIDS-free generation and a pol polio-free Africa within reach. None of us expected that. In education, Sub-Saharan Africa has made greater improvements in access to education since 1990 than any other region of the world. The proportion of children enrolled in primary or secondary school has risen 54% over the past 25 years. In large part because of progress in these critical areas, as well as others, Africa is becoming a major global player on the world stage. The world is sitting up and taking notice, and there has been an explosion of investment and interest in Africa in the last two decades. The truth is, we can't meet today's global challenges without Africa. When one thinks about ending poverty and fighting extremism and boosting economic growth, Africa is central to these efforts. 
Looking ahead, where Africa ends up on the world stage in the next century will, to a great extent, depend on how well the continent tackles its own challenges this century. It will also depend on how the United States and the international community partner with Africa to help it achieve its promise. So let's take a look at some of the challenges Africa faces and how to address them. I'm going to highlight five. I know I will hear from you that there are many others, uh, but these are five that I think are key. First at the top of the list is Africa's youth bulge. I talked about that when I started. Africa is a young continent. Half of all Africans are under the age of 19. That's really serious. Africa's population is projected to double to 2 billion people in 2050, and most of those people will be young people. So how do we ensure that this youthful population contributes to Africa's prosperity? I believe this starts with creating opportunities for Africa's youth. That means creating jobs. It also means strengthening education systems. It means mentoring. It means providing opportunity. And in spite of recent progress, there's still significant education deficit in Africa. Countries need to invest more in education, including primary school, and particularly for girls. Weak education means weak opportunity. And when youth have no opportunity, they're susceptible to extremist ideology, radicalization, criminality, and fleeing to Europe on rickety, unsafe boats. Programs that support youth, such as YALI, the Young African Leaders Initiative, were created to build concrete opportunities to give Africa's future leaders the educational skills and the capacity that they need to move their countries forward. We have seen the creativity and the energy and the ambitions of young Africans. And I know that many of you have met them. Africa's youth are its single greatest resource and they are a force for good. African leaders should view them as a treasure and as a source of dynamism to bring their countries out of poverty and into strong, prosperous, and successful governments. If we can ensure Africa's youth are engaged and they're contributing to their countries, Africa's economy will grow and its people will prosper and stability will be the order of the day. And that brings me to the second key challenge boosting Africa's economic growth. While Africa's overall economic trends are favorable, economic understanding of the real opportunities that exist, we need to correct misperceptions of risk and educate companies about the opportunities and the possibilities. On the, they're not in the non-agricultural sector and they can't read and write. We need to empower African women because when women are empowered, they invest in their children their families, their communities, and their countries. And I would note that the United States, of course, is not the only player on the continent of Africa. We also want to encourage other countries to invest. I often get asked about the role of Africa, of, of China in Africa. Africa is a huge continent. There's room for everyone to work there, and there are opportunities for all in the private sector. But I do say to African countries, you have to look at potential investors and pursue the best deals for your country and for your people. And you have to determine that you're getting a deal that is lasting and that is quality. We actually think that US companies and US corporate 
culture have a particularly good story to tell in Africa. And we know that when given a choice, African countries prefer American companies because of the values we bring to the table. We need to communicate that more consistently to our African interlocutors. A third key challenge for Africa is establishing strong democratic governance and eliminating corruption. While we've seen progress in some places, too often we see our African leaders clinging to power. Jame, for example. When leaders refuse to prepare for transition, sooner or later, instability, if not outright civil war, is the result. Cote d'Ivoire in 2011 with Bagbo, who refused to step down after losing the election, is a case in point. And I, I mentioned Gambia. And as for corruption, it remains an obstacle to progress, and it has to end. And we all know that. In a 2015 survey by Transparency International, 58% of Africans said corruption had grown worse over the preceding 12 months. The same survey revealed that 22% of Africans, one in every five, had paid a bribe to an official. Corruption act promotes exclusion and poverty by denying the most vulnerable people in Africa their basic needs and their security. It stifles development. A 2002 African Union study estimated that corruption costs the continent roughly $100 billion per year. And I know that figure surely must be higher today. These vast sums of money could be used for improving infrastructure, building schools and hospitals, and investing in youth throughout the continent. We must work with governments to end corruption by holding people accountable and helping them to recover stolen wealth. So my question is, how can we promote democratic transitions of power to promote stability and democracy in general? And this is an area where I believe that regional organizations play a significant role, and they're doing just that. And I take Gambia as the example. When President Jame reneged on his commitment to accept the results of the Gambia's presidential election in December of 2016, it was the economic community of West African states who stepped up and took a stand for democracy. ECOWAS, together with uh, Mauritania and Morocco, organized a strong diplomatic campaign with outreach by multiple heads of state to influence Jameh to give up power. In support of diplomatic efforts, ECOWAS's military forces amassed on the border of the Gambia. And in the end, Jameh got the message and he stepped aside, ceding power to the winner of the election, President Barrow. And this was an excellent example of African-conceived and African-managed efforts. The African Union is also a major player in promoting democracy, and they've been an advocate for free, fair, and democratic elections and peaceful transitions of power, even while some leaders living in glass palaces are reluctant to criticize their peers. But the African Union has stood strong. Ultimately, this is about the will of the people. An Afrobarometer survey last year indicated that more than two-thirds in Africa say Democracy is preferable to any other form of government. And a survey in 2015 indicated that three quarters support term limits. Africans want democracy. We need to capitalize on this sentiment 
by building, helping to build the capacity of civil society and electoral commissions to deliver elections that represent the will of the people. Fourth on the list of challenges is ending conflict and countering terrorism. South Sudan civil war has devastated that country for three years now, leading to massive displacement and a famine, an entirely man-made famine. It's bad enough when it's a natural disaster and we can't control it, but a man-made famine. Boko Haram continues to tear apart local communities in Nigeria and the great, greater Lake Chad Basin, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and other terrorist groups continue to undermine the stability of countries throughout the continent. How do we partner with Africa to end the devastating impact of terrorism? This is another key area where regional organizations are making a difference. The AU has taken a leading role addressing Africa's security challenges through standing up regional and AU peacekeeping missions and by building up funding for these missions. The State Department is supporting the AU's effort, having trained over 300,000 peacekeepers for deployment to AU and UN peacekeeping missions over the, over the past 12 years. The long-term solution, of course, to ending violence will depend on addressing the root causes of conflict, which include poor governance, weak economies, poverty, and lack of opportunity. This is the work that the United States must engage in, and we have to succeed, not just for Africa's immediate security, but for Africa's future and for our own security. A fifth and final challenge is meeting humanitarian needs throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. Due to conflict, drought, or both, millions are at risk of starvation in different parts of the continent. On February 20th, famine was declared in parts of South Sudan. Two other African countries, Nigeria and Somalia, face a credible risk of famine this year. How do we help these nations address these issues? One of the core requirements is building the capacity of governments and civil society to address critical humanitarian issues such as drought and famine. But in the meantime, until they have that capacity, we must work with the international community and other donors to provide humanitarian assistance to the most vulnerable people. In places like South Sudan, where the crisis, as I noted, is man-made and conflict-driven, governments and opposition leaders have the responsibility to put aside political ambitions for the good of their people. They must ensure that relief efforts are not impeded and allow food and other critical assistance to reach people who need it most. Despite the challenges I've outlined above, I continue to be optimistic about Africa's future, as I know all of you are. Africa has tremendous possibility with its resources, both natural as well as its people. If Africa can effectively harness its resources, the future is extraordinarily bright. We know that with only a few resources, African youth and women are developing businesses that are creating jobs, providing opportunities for the next generation. We know that the renewed focus on improving infrastructure is another beacon of hope. Energy and programs like Power Africa, roads and schools and hospitals uh, being built will lay the path for investment and for economic growth. 
Turning Africa's challenge into challenges into opportunities is hard work, but we have made tremendous progress. And for me, that optimism that I have comes from more than anything from the young people of Africa who I meet every time I travel to the continent. Their talent and their drive and their dedication are changing their countries for the better. Ultimately, Africa's success depends on a strong US-Africa relationship and continued engagement, and that requires a team effort. Regardless of whether you are inside of government or outside of government, everyone in this room has a role to play in ensuring that the US partnership with Africa is successful. Africa needs your ideas, it needs your passion, your advocacy, and your teamwork. I have to say as I close that I have immensely enjoyed working with all of you. For me, this has been a real labor of love and passion. It's because of that passion that I've been able to work 14 plus hour days, seven days a week for the past three and a half years. And while much remains to be done, much has been accomplished. I look forward to staying engaged with you as we protect American interests by helping Africa achieve its promise and its place on the global world stage. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Ambassador, for that uh, tour uh, d'horizon and a review of uh, the challenges ahead, but also the extraordinary promise. I'm going to exercise the uh, host's prerogative and throw out a first question and then open the floor up. Uh, you've listed a number of uh, we've listed a number of accomplishments and some challenges there. If you could, if you had to choose. What was the high point of this, uh, of these last three and a half years, and perhaps you know, uh, what what's the low point? Wow. <laughs> I, I have to say there were a lot of high points. Uh, the Africa Leaders Summit was a huge, huge high point, <laughs> and I, I started the job knowing that. I started in August of 13, and the president announced in July that he was going to host the Leader Summit. So it was on my plate the day I walked in the door. And I have to admit, I was not confident that we could pull it off. But with the help of all of you in the room, but particularly the African ambassadors, we did it. And uh, I think that will pay dividends, uh, dividends for uh, many years to come. I think if I had to list the second, and as I said, there are many, uh, the Nigerian election. Uh, nobody thought that that election would be successful. And we pulled out all the stops. Secretary Kerry visited uh, three times. I was there more times than I can count, uh, and I was there uh, on the day of the election. Johnny was there with NDI and others of you were, were there as well. Uh, and from the moment the election polls opened that morning, it was clear 
that the Nigerian people were committed to having a good election. And they did it. And then the second best part was that President Goodluck Jonathan, and he will go down in history, and this is his legacy, accepted the results of the election without any fanfare and turned over the reins of power uh, to uh, his opponent. And that set, I think, a standard for the rest of, of the continent. And we were part of it, but it was the people of Nigerian, Nigeria who actually did it. But that was a proud moment for, for us. Low points. This, is Shannon in the room? Shannon, you remember uh, December of 2013? That was a low point, and I had only been on the job a few months. That was the resumption of civil war in South Sudan just two years after independence. It was a sad moment to see this country that two years earlier we were all rejoicing with. We were all jubilating uh, the, uh, the success of this new country uh, to, uh, to the community of, uh, of democracies. And two years later, we were faced with a complete failure. And for me, that continues to be a sad moment uh, because as I leave this job tomorrow, uh, South Sudan still has not figured out a way to find peace for itself and for its people. And the people of South Sudan continue to suffer. So that's it. Now we'll open it up to uh, are there many questions. I would ask you to please wait for the microphones to come to you and then uh, when they arrive, uh, if you would, uh, uh, although many of us know each other for the sake of those who are watching us uh, on webcasts or otherwise, please identify yourself. So Mel, right, right here in the middle. Right here, uh, right in the middle. She's coming too. <laughs> the room is so crowded. We, we're out. We're, we're out. No. No. Ambassador, uh, first of all, congratulations on the excellent uh, three and a half years or four years. Uh, you did a wonderful job. Um, healthcare infrastructure. Uh, you also walked in on Ebola, and I think the U.S. government has done a wonderful job in responding to it. And there's a lot of people alive today because of U.S. government support and your help. Um, where do you put the priority of healthcare infrastructure? Uh, I saw today in the Washington Post where uh, the president uh, is going to reduce, uh, you know, global threats fund from CDC, and I'm wondering about that. Africa is launching a, their own CDC now with support of the United States government. Where do you put the priority of African healthcare going forward? Uh, I think Ebola uh, made clear to all of us that healthcare has to be a priority. And if we don't build the infrastructure, we will continue to deal with crisis health uh, issues uh, such as Ebola. So the efforts to build the capacity within Africa to address health uh, crises such as the uh, creation of the African CDC, building capacity within individual African countries so that they can respond and a great example was Nigeria, when Nigeria was faced uh, with, uh, with Ebola. Uh, they had the infrastructure. It wasn't perfect, but it was an infrastructure that worked, 
and uh, they were able to stop the spread of Ebola in, in Nigeria. So the answer is building the capacity inside of Africa. Uh, I, I firmly believe that we will continue to remain committed to supporting that effort. And in addition to the United States, there are other partners who will also work uh, with Africa to support that effort. Ambassador Runa. Thank you very much. Congratulations again, uh, uh, Ambassador Greenfield, for your job well done. And uh, I think uh, I, will, I will want to ask uh, maybe a question that might be an educated guess from your part, or yes. quite an educated <laughs> guess from your part. I think it's in mind of everybody here. Where do you see the, the next phase of uh, the U.S.-Africa relationship under this new administration, specifically from your point of view? I know nothing is clear now, but mm -hmm. I want an educated guess from you. Thank you. <laughs> That's assuming uh, that I'm educated. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, Africa has always been bipartisan in our uh, efforts uh, from administration to administration. And so I expect that the relationship that we have with Africa during uh, the next administration will continue to be strong. It'll be different. It's different with every administration. Some things are, are kept and some things are not, and new things are, are introduced. We're at too early a stage in this administration to see what the trend lines are, are going to look like. But everything I've seen so far, if we look back through history as we look forward, uh, we're going, going to continue to remain a committed partner uh, to, to Africa. In the back there, I think Dana. Uh, wait for, uh, you wait for the microphone and kindly identify yourself for everyone else. Thank you. It's uh, Dana Marshall with Transnational Strategy Group. Ambassador, thank you so much for that tour de force and congratulations on a very successful career. Best wishes on your next one. You mentioned uh, um, in a few different contexts that the continent is large enough for both the United States, China, and others to be contributing to infrastructure development. You also mentioned Power Africa a number of times. I wonder if you might in that context perhaps offer some advice to the new administration here about how it can make its own efforts to promote U.S. exports uh, via programs like Power Africa to become even more effective. What is it that could be done that could try to balance the U.S. footprint on infrastructure development across the board in Africa, something comparable to what the Chinese are doing there right now? You know, I don't know that we want to do exactly what the Chinese are doing uh, right now. Uh, there are a lot of white elephants across the continent of, uh, of Africa. Uh, and that's certainly not uh, something that we want to engage in. We want to build infrastructure that is lasting and infrastructure that is, is, is going to make a difference in the lives of Africans. And I think, again, we have a good news story to tell. MCC has been a major player uh, for the United States government on the continent. We have done large infrastructure projects that have made a difference. I was in Liberia back in December to cut the ribbon on the first uh, of four uh, uh, hydro turbines. 
that MCC participated in along with uh, other governments. And those kinds of projects really will have a lasting impact. So I think we already are on the right track in providing um, the kinds of infrastructure that will uh, lead to Africa's uh, making a difference in, in the lives of Africans in the future. Could we be doing more? Absolutely. And as the new administration starts to put together its Africa team, we have left behind uh, um, our memos for uh, the new assistant secretary that will outline some of the efforts that we've made in the past, but also new efforts that can be made. Uh, in addition to focusing on, on you know, the hard stuff like infrastructure, we have to continue to focus on the soft stuff, what we call the software, and that is building capacity. And we do that better than any other country uh, on, uh, on, on the globe. Uh, we do provide capacity. This is what uh, all of our exchange programs are about. This is what our educational programs are about. This is what YALI is about. Doug. Hi, Doug Brooks, uh, International Stability Operations Association. In terms of uh, African stability operations, we've seen a lot of new partners uh, that we're working with. I wonder, uh, in two or three ideas, where would you like to see the U.S. go in terms of supporting these partnerships in the future? Well, we, I think we have to continue to do more of what we're already doing. Uh, one, uh, building capacity, uh, providing training uh, to, to Africans to respond to uh, the internal threats that they face. We're doing that in the case of Nigeria. We're doing it with the Cameroonians. Uh, we're doing it uh, in, in Chad. Uh, we're doing it in, in Somalia, helping to train and build capacity for them to respond because we can't be everywhere all, all the time. Uh, secondly, uh, we have to look at what uh, their threats are and the extent to which those threats are, uh, can be dealt with uh, internally. So what are the root causes? Of, of some of the problems in Africa. Boko Haram just didn't grow up overnight as a, uh, as a terrorist organization. There were internal issues inside of Nigeria that contributed to the, uh, the creation of Boko Haram. And so working with these governments on, on dealing with uh, human rights and, and, um, and kind of the soft things of taking care of, the, of their own people uh, is a second area that I think is, is key. And then third, we have to work with, uh, uh, with the regional organizations and uh, other partners because, again, this is not something uh, we can do alone. Uh, it's a team sport, uh, and everybody has to participate in it. And it's not just us. It's, it's the Chinese. It's the Europeans. It's the Africans themselves. <coughs> Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services USA. I wanted to ask you about higher education in Africa. I worked for several years for the Council for International Exchange of Scholars. That was the senior Fulbright program. What are the strengths at this point of higher education? What would you like to see enhanced? And what more can the United States do in this area? 
look, I, uh, this is one of the things that has really irked me uh, over uh, the past 20 years, and that is the, uh, the extent to which higher education has gone down on the continent of Africa. There are great universities on, on that continent, and they produce amazingly well-educated uh, people. But you look at universities, and not to pick on Nigeria, Matabello. I mean, I was at the University of Wisconsin, and Matabello was sending some of the best uh, and the smartest students I've ever engaged. And Matabello is barely uh, functioning. University of Liberia produced uh, their major production is degrees, uh, but no education behind it. And that was a good uh, university. And you can make that argument across Africa because uh, countries are not investing in higher education at all. But let's take it a step farther. They're not investing in, in secondary school. They're not inv investing in tertiary school. So while, while we're seeing more and more kids go uh, uh, to primary school, uh, they have nowhere to go from there. And the level of education, the quality of the education they're getting in these primary schools uh, do not prepare them. Uh, for for the future. So if I had a crystal ball or if I were asked what would I focus on in Africa uh, in the coming years, it would be education. Uh, that's a, a key, key uh, challenge that African countries need to address. They need to put more of their budget, more of their funding toward, uh, toward education at every single level. As a former lecturer at Amadou Bello University, I, uh, <laughs> I can relate to that. Um, I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that you, the department may have fewer, uh, my name is Tony Carroll, and uh, <laughs> those of you who don't know me, um, we may have fewer tools to deal with in our public, in our diplom diplomatic relations going forward. Uh, it looks like mm -hmm. it's gonna be that way. We have many levers. We have uh, trade investment, we have security, we have education, we have public diplomacy, we have development assistance, we have other tools perhaps that I'm not mentioning. In looking back upon your rich, varied, and hugely successful career, uh, if we have to put our priorities in the right order, um, among all those tools, and of course it's hard to generalize among all the African countries, they may be in different you know, states and, and different uh, you know, uh, tools should be utilized, but where do you think we really get the best bang for our buck? And where do we have the most leverage in our relationships with Africa? You know, the exchange programs, I think, uh, have paid dividends for us for generations. And we have educated a whole generation of African leaders. Uh, and we continue to, to educate. And I think that is where we will continue to get tremendous uh, uh, rewards from, are programs like, uh, like that. They, they have long-term benefits. Uh, people remember their experiences, both good and bad, uh, but mostly good experiences uh, uh, in, in the United States or through programs that we have supported. And the other one, and it, it's kind of similar, is Peace Corps. I, I, I cannot tell you a country that I've been in in Africa where there are Peace Corps volunteers that people do not express their gratitude for Peace Corps and for what Peace Corps has done. And people will remember their Peace Corps teacher, they're in their 70s, and they'll remember the Peace Corps teacher who taught them in the 1960s. So these are soft programs, 
but these are the programs that truly make a difference to, to the people of Africa. Certainly, we're going to have to continue to work in uh, development. We're going to have to continue to work in security. And we have to continue to build our diplomatic platform so that we can engage with, uh, with Africans. Where we're going to go in terms of money, I think all of that is kind of working its way through, uh, uh, through Congress and, and uh, through the administration. But I think ultimately, while there may be cuts, and that's, uh, uh, it, that's a given, uh, we do have programs that will continue to make a difference. And then we're going to have to work to leverage other people's money uh, and other people's capacity uh, so that uh, the, uh, the countries that we're working with in, with in Africa will uh, continue to, to benefit. The gentleman over here. Hi, my name is Mohamed Dini. I'm uh, from Minnesota, actually, and I'm I came here, I'm so glad to, to be here because of uh, your leadership. I'm so sorry that you are leaving the state from the State Department. Thank you, Mr. Fam and Africa Program for your facilitation for the, of this event. Uh, dear Linda, uh, corruption is a problem that this continent has been going on. Uh, I was young when, I'm actually from Somalia. I'm Somali-American. It was, uh, 1990, it was 1989 when the former government uh, collapsed, actually 1991. But the corruption in the African continent in general is a disaster. We have kind of uh, uh, disasters, we have man-made disasters, we have uh, extremists that's, that are going on in Somalia or in Nigeria. Uh, when there's bad government, Based on corruption, the hope is very low. We are very pessimistic. Uh, I hope that the best friend that the United States, the Africa has is the United States. I hope that the honeymoon will go on, will not finish. But what's the strategy? What do you think that this administration, our president, our great president Trump, this administration in Africa, I know that you are leaving, but what's your prospects in Africa? Uh, I hope that there will be what I call Afro-Americanomics that Africa will not be forgetting. So what, how do you see in Africa with next 10 years, like uh, Jandai Fraser or Chester Crocker, I was a child. At that time, Chester Crocker was uh, Africa uh, director for the State Department director for Africa. Are you optimistic that Africa will gain the respect and dignity that it has without corruption? I'm absolutely optimistic. Africa has to earn its own respect and the, res and the respect of its people. Uh, it's not something that we can give. It's not something that we control. It's all within the hands of Africans themselves. We can, we can help. We can build capacity. Uh, we can help hold people accountable for corruption. Uh, and as I said in, in my remarks, corruption is stifling development on the continent of Africa. It's horrific to be uh, in a city driving down streets and roads don't work. And to see mansions on, on roads that barely uh, can take a car. Uh, uh, these are things that, that people themselves have to address and leaders have to address. And I, I think as we look at the young people 
that are, are, are on the continent of Africa, those we've engaged in through Yali, but we engage with a lot of young people. Uh, they want to see their countries thrive. Uh, they want to be uh, proud of their countries. And so I think as we go into the next decade, uh, we're going to see these countries begin to, to develop and develop in a positive way because this is what people are asking for. Uh, and we all have to stand up against corruption. Uh, we all have to hold people accountable. And uh, we all have to call a spade a spade. Uh, when we see it, we have to call it. And people don't like it. They don't want to hear it. Uh, and particularly, you know, Africans are very respectful of each other. And so you don't want to call out each other. We Americans will call you out. <laughs> uh, we'll call out each other. It's just part of our culture. And then you don't like us when we call you out. But then when we stop calling, calling things out, people say, well, where's America? Why are you not saying more? What are you doing about corruption in Africa? What are you doing to deal with, with, with this situation? Well, it's not us. It's you. You have to deal with this. You have to ask for our help. You have to want it. And then you have to accept it. And so again, we, we have to work together to, uh, to see uh, this continent start to show the benefits of all the resources you have. This is a rich continent, extraordinarily rich continent. Uh, people should not be starving to death on, on, on the continent of Africa. Uh, but again, it's, it's going to take a lot of hard work, as I said. Nima. Thank you. Ambassador, thank you for uh, Mima Nadelkovic. Wide-ranging thoughts and reflections, and I think we cover an awful lot of various uh, topics. But I'd be interested, there's one we seem to not have touched on. That's the, the rise of the African private sector, African-born bread businesses, and perhaps in, we've had many years on the continent. Kind of your reflection of what you've seen over the years and what role the African private sector could play in its own development of its, of its continent. Thank you. Yeah, we have to have the Africa private sector because what happens is things go wrong. Americans pack up their bags and go home. All foreigners pack up their bags and go home. So there has to be a uh, homegrown, African-led, African-based private sector. And what I've seen is with very little, we have seen huge growth in the Africa private sector. Young people with hardly any money. Uh, women with hardly any money. And, uh, and some of the things that we need to do is figure out a way to provide capital uh, to, uh, to these young budding businesses to take them to the next level. So they're creating jobs, but they're only creating jobs at a certain level because they can't get the capital to go to the next level. And we have to look at where uh, we might be able to assist in them getting that, the, that next level of capital that will put them into the next level of uh, job creation. Um, and it can be done. We've seen, we've seen it happen. Um, uh, the Africa Development Foundation has been giving small grants to, uh, to African uh, entrepreneurs. And we've seen what people have done with just a small amount of money. So if there are American investors in the room, I encourage you to look at some of these young, budding entrepreneurs who just need uh, a little bit of capital 
to take what are great ideas and move them into uh, job creation uh, opportunities for, uh, for the continent. And it's, it's growing. Young lady there. Hello, ma'am. My name is Ade Tola. I work with a TV station in Nigeria. And um, my question is, I know they've kind of asked, it, asked the question already, but you've not really answered it. And <laughs> it's about President Donald Trump and his policy for Africa. Till now, we've still not really seen any policy. And there are a lot of fears, like most times when I get calls from my station, it's always about what's going to happen to Yali? What's going to happen to Pepfa? Mm -hmm. You know, already we've, we've heard what he did with TPP. And what's going to happen to Agoa? So these are the fears that people are having. So what do you think President Trump is going to do? Are we going to see a real policy on Africa that will keep you know, the relationship that President Obama built with Africa? Or do you think, you know, is it over? So can you please answer this question? <laughs> uh, you're asking me for a crystal ball. It's not over. I mean, I, I, I find that uh, question just, uh, um, I don't even know how to answer that question. It's not over. Uh, this administration has been in power for less than two months. And uh, there's this expectation that you're going to know what the future. Look, rewind back to the beginning of the Obama administration and see where we were on Africa. And I would probably guess we were somewhere around the same place. There was a lot of enthusiasm because President Obama was of African descent. But in terms of policy, it takes time to develop those policies. No, it's not going to be the same policy. It's never the same policy, regardless of, of what administration it is. They want to put their own stamp on, on the policy. And, and you'll see it eventually unwind and evolve. And I just encourage people to be patient. Uh, Africa has a huge, huge following in this uh, country. I've been talking to uh, congressmen and senators on the Hill, because they're interested in knowing what's going on in Africa. And they, too, set our policy agenda on the continent of Africa. So no, I don't see the Trump administration ignoring Africa. I see that we're going to have an Africa policy that will reflect the interest and the priorities of this administration as they lay those out for us. And when they happen, you'll know it. Gentleman in the back. Oh. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Ture Kairaba, and I'm from Ivory Coast. I'm a student in economics, and my specialization is international trade. I have two main concerns tonight. My first one is like you talk about uh, the relationship between United States and Africa. You know, Africa has always, ha Africa always has a relationship with United States since the beginning. But the problem is what type of relationship do they have? Because what we notice is, is United States going in Africa as helper or are, are they going in Africa as a two main continent or like as, as Africa is a continent which are they trying to help or is a continent which is like sovereign and they try to have like a partnership with them? I don't know if you get my point. I think I do. Okay. Because like I notice in Africa, what we need 
First is the transfer of technology. Because Africa has, like you say, is a very rich continent. It has all those main resources already there. But what we need is to add value on those resources. And the Western continent countries has already the technology that Africa needs. What the Western continent are trying to do to help Africa to add value on those first um, raw material? Thank you. Uh, that's an excellent question. And it is adding value to your natural, natural resources that will take, uh, make your economies grow uh, and will create jobs. So I absolutely agree with you. But my question back to you and back to Africa is Africa has to demand that technology. It has to demand it. It has to want it. It has to put it in their agreements that they are having with, with companies. Uh, companies are going to do uh, the most they can, and that's their business. It is the business of companies to make profit. And so they are about making profits. Countries have to ensure that as they make profits, that they invest some of those profits back into the country, into technology, and ensure that uh, value is added to, uh, to the resources that are on the continent. For example, in Nigeria, Nigeria should be a petrol-producing country, not just an oil-producing country. But Nigeria has to demand it. And I, I sometimes, you know, and, and again, I love Africa. I want to see this economy grow. But you, it is not just our problem that Africa is not growing. The problems are also in, in Africa as well. And so we have to partner. Uh, with African countries to ensure that uh, the kinds of capacity that you're talking about is part of our, our relationships. Ambassador, if I may respectfully, Sister Ambassador, Janetta Cole from the National Museum of African Art. So my question will be self-serving. We all have enormous respect, admiration for the traditional visual arts of Africa. But on the contemporary African art scene, there's an extraordinary explosion. In the international art market now, Africa is extremely prominent. What do you see with this, not only in terms of our ability just to continue to admire human creativity mm -hmm. as expressed on the one continent where human creativity was first expressed. But what do you see in terms of the potential around economic development for the visual arts? I, I, I think the answer is, is simple. Um, uh, there's huge potential. But what I have found is there's no value in Africa given to promoting the, the creativity and promoting art. And we have to really push that uh, out uh, to Africa. We value, and uh, artists are tremendously popular in the US, but I will go, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I can go in an African embassy and not see African art hanging in some of your embassies. I can go into some offices in Africa and not see these new contemporary artists 
artwork hanging in, in government offices. And I can go into some homes, and it is not hanging in people's homes. It has to be valued both outside of Africa and inside of Africa so that the artists know that uh, they are appreciated. Because otherwise, they just come to the United States or they go to Europe, and we appreciate their, their, their art. Uh, and some people appreciate it inside of the continent, but it needs to be promoted in Africa. It needs to be promoted as a resource and uh, encouraged as, as, as a resource. I, I'm just amazed. There was a young artist in, in Liberia, David Wolaba. David worked in a small room uh, in, uh, in a small area with barely any light. And what that guy produced was extraordinary and huge pieces. Uh, no artist in the United States will work under those conditions and be able to produce that kind of quality work as, as David produced. Uh, so we have to encourage, encourage them. I know there are uh, remaining yeah. questions, but I also have to, uh, uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield has been very generous with her time. And despite the fact that this is her penultimate day, she still has a, uh, uh, schedule, uh, a busy schedule in the reigning 24 hours. I want to have, allow some time because we actually have set up a, a, a modest reception outside. And ask you, I invite you to join us in lifting a glass up to her. Uh, I'll excuse myself in advance uh, with the African ambassador. We tried to get as uh, to make this an African reception, and so there's no favoritism um, in countries. But uh, an additional challenge, if I may throw it out to you, all respect, some of your countries finding your products in Washington is not easy. Uh, <laughs> some are easier than others, and uh, and uh, and for those who are worried, uh, the. Uh, there, I think there are chicken wings out there. The chicken wings are Goa compliant. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but please join me uh, in really giving a, a warm appreciation to Master Thomas Greenfield. Thank you.